Our passage of scripture tonight, again, is one verse, uh, Psalm 27, verse 4. One thing I have desired of the Lord, that will I seek, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life, to behold the beauty of the Lord, and to inquire in his temple, Psalm 27.4, that is uh, one of the many, or parts of one, a part of one of the many Psalms of David, who we know was king of Israel, who we know was a man after God's own heart, as God had described him. And part of that was because of his desires. He desired to be the man who obeyed God, who stayed with God, uh, who sought God. Was he perfect in that? Obviously, no, he was not. Uh, but he was mostly, for a good part of his life, a man after God's own heart, somebody who loved him and followed him. Christ, as I've been saying for the several weeks, meant God's anointed. And David, as a king, was also, you could say, a Christ because he was one of God's anointed, not the Christ, but one of the Christ's one of the anointed ones of God. And as we've been going through the several weeks, uh, prophets were anointed by God, priests were anointed by God, and kings were anointed by God. And all three, as I've been saying, uh, prophets were to increase our knowledge of God, priests were to increase our righteousness in God's sight, and now kings, kings were to increase our holiness. And when God evaluated the kings, and this is my first point for tonight, how does God evaluate kings? And I would say not by the economy, but by faithfulness to God, by their morality, by their, their hearts before the king. Uh, Bill Clinton once said, it's the economy, stupid. But when he said that, he was covering up for his own lack of morality. And because we weren't a, a very Christian, godly, moral nation, we went along with them. We said, oh, it's the economy. That's what counts. But in scripture, the economy is not what counts. When God evaluates a king, he evaluates the king by his moral standards, by whether he's going to be faithful to God or not. We see right after David... Solomon, who was David's son, uh, failed. He fell into idolatry, and idolatry is the opposite of holiness. Holiness means we are faithful to God. God is our all in all. He's our everything. And, and to David, that was the case. But to his son Solomon, Solomon may have started well, but his wives, his many foreign wives, took him away from pure holiness to God. So we read in, in 1 Kings eleven six through 10, it says, Solomon did evil in the sight of the Lord and did not fully follow the Lord as did his father David. Then Solomon built a high place for Chimos, the abomination of Moab, on the hill that is east of Jerusalem and for the Molech, the abomination of the people of Ammon, he did likewise for all his foreign wives who burned incense and sacrificed to their gods. 
So the Lord became angry with Solomon because his heart had turned from the Lord God of Israel, who had appeared to him twice and had commanded him concerning this thing, that he should not go after other gods, but he did not keep what the Lord had commanded. And so we see with Solomon, who, who had all these great promises from God, who, who God granted this great wisdom, even though he had this wisdom, he used the wisdom in a worldly way. He, he married all these foreign wives, and there he lived up to his name, which Solomon means peace, but in a worldly way he made peace with all these foreign nations, and he made peace with them by appeasing their false gods. And in this way, you could say he was wise in a worldly way, but he was not faithful to the Lord. David had been better, even though David had war all the time. He was fighting with ungodly nations. He would hate to think that his son was bowing down to idols, but his son Solomon did that. I believe later in his life he repented. We, some of us have gone through Ecclesiastes and we see his repentance at the end. But he was wrong in the way he went. See this is how God always evaluated kings. We see Rehoboam who was Solomon's successor. Now he led Judah in wicked idolatry. It says in verse 21 of 1 Kings 14, 21 through 24, And Rehoboam, the son of Solomon, reigned in Judah. Rehoboam was 41 years old when he became king. He reigned 17 years in Jerusalem, a city which the Lord had chosen out of all the tribes of Israel to put his name there. His, mother name, his mother's name was Neah, uh, an, an Ammonitess. And Judah did evil in the sight of the Lord. And they provoked him to jealousy by their sins, which they committed more than all their fathers had done. For they also had built themselves high places, sacred pillars, wood and images on every high hill, under every green tree. And there were also perverted persons in the land. They did according to all the abominations of the nations which the Lord had cast out before the children of Israel. We see Solomon failed and he, he started worshiping those false gods and his son goes even further, it seems, and leads the whole nation into this worship of false gods, false images, and then into perverted ways. And how quickly uh, we see a nation can fall into these things. Now a good king was evaluated by getting rid of the idols. 1 Kings 15, 9 through 12. And I'm not going to go through all the kings, just some examples. It says in this passage, in the 20th year of Jeroboam, king of Israel, Asa became king over Judah. And he reigned 41 years in Jerusalem. His grandmother's name was Maacah, the granddaughter of Apishalom, Shalom, Asa did what was right in the eyes of the Lord, as did his father David. And listen to what he did that was right. And he banished the perverted persons from the land, and he removed all the idols that his father had made. Sometimes we hear the saying, you can't legislate morality. Like you can legislate immorality. But Asa legislated in he legislated morality. He got rid of all the perverted people and he got rid of the false 
idols that his fathers had worshipped. Look up any of the kings, and they are always evaluated this way. First uh, Kings sixteen thirty and thirty one. It says, "Now Ahab, the son of Omri, did evil in the sight of the Lord more than all who were before him, and it came to pass as." Though it had been a trivial thing for him to walk in the sins of Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, that he took as his wife Jezebel, the daughter of Ethbaal, the king of the Sidonians, and he went and served Baal and worshipped him. Here's a king of Israel who's worshipping Baal instead of worshipping the true God. That's what he did wrong. Again, Second Chronicles 17, 3-6, it says... Now the Lord was with Jehoshaphat because he walked in the former ways of his father David. He did not seek the Baals, but he sought the God of his father and walked in his commandments, not according to the acts of Israel. Therefore the Lord established the kingdom in his hand, and all Judah gave presents to Jehoshaphat, and he had riches and honor and abundance and his heart took delight in the ways of the Lord. Moreover, he removed the high places, meaning the places where they worshipped idols, and the wooden images from Judah. Notice every time, this is how kings were evaluated. God doesn't say, this king built the economy up really good, and this king left us all poor. No, it doesn't matter what they did with that. This king led us to worship God. The other kings led us to worship idols. The kings that led us to worship God were good. The kings that led us to worship idols were bad. The kings that did righteousness were good. The kings that uh, uh, led perverted ways are bad. Always it was judged in this way, every time. And kings are to guide us into holiness. They are to guide us into righteousness. That's what uh, they are to do. Holiness... As I said, there's the three parts of God's image that we are. There is knowledge, there's righteousness, and there's holiness. Knowledge was the responsibility of the prophets. Righteousness was the responsibility of the priest. And holiness, meaning being wholehearted and given to God, was the responsibility for the kings. Holiness is an essential part of God's image. And so we read in the New Testament, 1 Peter 1, 15 and 16, but as he who has called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct, because it is written, Be holy, for I am holy. God is holy, and he wants us to be holy. Holiness is a likeness to God that is dependent upon a closeness to God, a commitment to God, and a love for God. If we love God, if we're committed to him, uh, if we delight in him, we will be holy because we will be close to him and he will make us such. In 1 John two fifteen through 17, it says, Do not love the world or the things that are in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life is not of the Father, but is of the world. And the world is passing away in the lust of it. But he who does the will of God abides forever. If we are in love with the world and we're walking with the world and we want to please the world, 
like Solomon did. He wanted to please all these wives that he had. He wanted to please their fathers who were kings of other nations. He gave himself to these things and, and he left off of God. And some of the other kings were even worse than him. And they went that way. David had one desire. That was to dwell in the house of the Lord. And even though he failed, uh, when he went for Bathsheba, he repented of that. Personal holiness is prerequisite to leading others in holiness. As I read the first verse that I read today, Psalm 27, 4, it says, One thing I have desired of the Lord, that will I seek that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life to behold the beauty of the Lord and to inquire in his temple. That was David's heart. And I believe because that was his heart, that's why he was considered by God a man after God's own heart. Because God knew where David was personally. God knew where David's personal heart was. And this is the most important part for any of us If we want to be an influence on anybody else, we first have to be right ourselves before we can influence other people. It was holiness, a holiness to God that made David a man after God's own heart, despite David's other failing. Notice 1 Kings 15, 4 and 5 says, Nevertheless, for David's sake, the Lord his God gave him a lamp in Jerusalem by setting up his son after him and establishing Jerusalem because David did what was right in the eyes of the Lord and had not turned aside from anything that he commanded him all the days of his life except in the matter of Uriah the Hittite. Uriah the Hittite was the husband of Bathsheba who David had killed. He messed up in that. But they're saying other than that, David was right. In Acts 13.22, it says, And when he had removed him, and the person who removed was Saul, the king before David, it says, He raised up for them David as king, to whom he also gave testimony and said, I have found David, the son of Jesse, a man after my own heart, who will do all my will. David was chosen to be king by God. Saul was chosen by the people. David was chosen by God. And why is that? Because he knew David would do his will. Elders are taught in Scripture to take heed to themselves and to all the flock. It says in Acts 20, 28, Therefore take heed to yourselves, And to all the flock among which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to shepherd the church of God, which he purchased with his own blood. For I know this, that after my departure, this is Paul speaking, my departure, savage wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. Also from among yourselves, men will rise up speaking perverse things to draw away the disciples after themselves. Therefore watch and remember that for three years I did not cease to warn everyone night and day with tears. Here he's saying, notice what he says to the elders first. He says, take heed to yourselves. Make sure you are walking with God. Make sure you are are holy 
Make sure you are, are a man after God's heart. If you are that, or for any of us, if you are women after God's heart, if you're right after God's heart, then you can lead others. Notice he says, there will be some, even from among yourselves, some will be raised up and they won't stay with the Lord. I remember a long time ago when I was in college, the navigators had a Christmas party and the man who preached, I remember he counted us all off, one, two, three, one, two, three, one, two, three. And, I, and as far as I remember, he said, you know, 10 years from now, Two out of three of you won't be in church anymore. It's just the way statistics go. He says, it's people, there's going to be one out of three of you that's going to stay excited for the Lord. And he basically, he, his message was, be that one. Be the one who stays with the Lord. Be the one who stays strong. And that is to be our goal. goal. David Martin Lloyd-Jones said, the great concern of the New Testament epistles is not about the size of the church, but about the purity of the church. It's not how many we have, but it's how many we have that are really walking with the Lord. That's what counts. Three, we are rulers. We are kings at the very least over ourselves. I've often thought of these verses. How does this apply to us? Uh, Revelation 5, 9, and 10 says, And they sang a new song, saying, You are worthy to take the scroll and to open its seals, for you were slain and have redeemed us to God by your blood out of every tribe and tongue and people and nation and have made us kings and priests to our God, and we shall reign on the earth. And the main part, you know, we, we are priests in, the, in that we pray for each other and do things like that. Uh, our lives are to be living sacrifices. But the main thing I want to consider tonight is it says, and have made us kings. And then it says, and we shall reign on the earth. How are we, if we're believers, I believe we're all kings. If the women want to be queens, Instead of kings, we can be that. But we are all, in some sense, uh, to, to rule as, as kings. And one of the great battles we have with an ungodly world is regarding who rules. Who is going to reign in this earth? Does Christ rule? Does God rule? Or do ungodly politicians rule? And the book of Revelation... And you know, I'm going through the whole book in uh, a couple minutes here. The book of Revelation contains seven seals, seven trumpets, seven bowls. And God rules. Jesus is king of kings and lord of lords. And we are kings and priests underneath him. And we are ruled and we rule by his commands. It says in Revelation 22:14, Blessed are those who do his commandments that they may have right to the tree of life and may enter uh, through the gates into the city. Yet 666 means man rules. You know, the Antichrist, 666, I believe, is man, man, man. It's emphasis. This is man. And when man rules and, and it says there's no God, uh, he, he rules in that way. John Lennon, imagine there's no heaven. It's easy if you try. No hell below us, above us only sky. 
Imagine all the people living for today. Ah, imagine. There's no countries. It isn't hard to do. Nothing to kill or die for. No religion, too. No God, no religion, no heaven, no hell. That is the dream of an ungodly world. No morality holding us back. And it would be all peace and love. That's what they say. Because they think that everybody's fighting over these rules. But man rules means there's no Ten Commandments. Man rules ultimately means the survival of the fittest. It means there is no image of God in man. We're not knowledgeable. We're not holy. We have no righteousness and we have no requirements like that. And so Revelation pictures that group of men who would rule without God as a beast. Revelation 13, 1, it says, Then I stood on the sand of the sea, and I saw a beast rising up out of the earth, having seven heads and ten horns, and on his horn ten crowns, and on his head a blasphemous name. Notice it's a beast who rules. He has ten crowns, meaning he has perfect and complete power. That's the ungodly way. Uh, no jurisdiction. Only the beast rules. There's nobody ruling underneath the beast. It's just the power of a one world government. With God, we have the opposite. We have jurisdictional government. With God, we have God as king over all. With God, we have self-government. Each one of us are called to self-control, to govern ourselves. If at the very least, that's what we have. We have self-government. A beast doesn't need to govern themselves. Only God's people govern themselves. We have family government. We have church government. We have town and city government. We have all these little governments under the bigger government. Uh, and it helps because we can watch out for each other more than somebody in uh, one central place in the world could. The ungodly desire, one world government, as John uh, Lennon sung in his song, no countries, no religion, just uh, one rule and one, one world uh, government. The beginning of being a king and queen, though, in God's eyes, is self-government or self-control. As it says in Galatians 5.22, but the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, long-suffering, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, Self-control against such there is no law. It's interesting. I think when we consider the fruit of the Spirit, I think the first one, love, is, you know, it, it kind of is the inspiration for all the others. And then the last one, self-control, kind of holds everything together. Both of those are extremely important we often think about how important love is, but if we govern ourselves, that means we have all those other fruits of the Spirit. That means the Spirit ultimately is controlling us and helping us to, to do what is right and, and good. This means controlling even our thoughts, even our urges and desires. In Matthew 5, uh, 21 through 27 uh, it says, you've heard that it was said of those the days, and, and Jesus is speaking, thou shalt not murder. But then Jesus goes on and says, if you have anger against your brother without cause, you've already murdered in your heart. 
The same thing he says later in 27 through 30. He says, if a man uh, uh, looks at a woman to lust after her, he's already committed adultery in his heart. But if we have self-control, we're not only controlling our outward actions, which is the very beginning of self-control, but we're controlling even those thoughts. By the grace of God, we're enabled to not think of uh, killing my neighbor because I'm mad at him. And it's good if you decide, I'm not going to kill him even though I'm mad at him. But it's better if we never even had that feeling in the first place. If, if somehow uh, we can be patient with that person and not get angry and not have that inside us. In Romans 6.12, Paul says, Therefore, do not let sin reign in your mortal body that you should obey it in its lusts. There we get, again, self-control. Do not let sin... And here is uh, what happens. Reign. Is sin going to be king in your heart? Or is Christ going to be king in your heart? Do not let sin reign in your mortal body. When we talk about Christ being king, we're talking about those kind of things. Even controlling our thoughts. It means also controlling our tongue. James 3.2 says, For we all stumble in many things, if anyone does not stumble in a word, he is a perfect man, able also to bridle uh, the whole body. Uh, we live in a day and age where people lie every day, and they use it as a tool. We live in a day and age where uh, lots of people will gossip, and, and they almost enjoy it. But those who control the tongue... It's by the grace of God. It's by the power of God. And when we, are ha when we have self-control, we have control over our tongue and we use it for God's glory and for blessing the people around us, not cursing. It means wives submit to husbands. It means children obey parents. It means schools don't have a right to change a child's sex without telling the parents. These are things that uh, if we are ruling in holiness, it controls all these things. Holiness would have never taken God out of education. Deuteronomy 6, 4 through 9 uh, says, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your strength. And these words which I command you today shall be in your heart. You shall teach them diligently to your children. We are to teach our children about God and about God's laws. And we're to teach our children to love God and to follow his, his will. It goes on and it says, you shall talk of them when you sit in your house, when you walk by the way, when you lie down, when you rise up, you shall bind them as a sign on your hand and they shall be frontlets between your eyes. You shall write them on the doorposts of your house and on your gates. God's word should be everywhere. Uh, so we see it everywhere because we need it. Ultimately, self-rule and family rule are both fruits of God's spirit. In Ephesians, we read that we are not to be drunk with wine, Ephesians 5.18, but we're to be filled with the spirit. And it's in light of that verse that later we read that wives are to submit to husbands and husbands are to love their wives as, as Christ loved the church and that we are to have these glorious relationships 
within families in, in, in the church. Um, and this is all part of God's rule and his way. An ungodly world cannot see God's kingdom. Jesus says in John 3.3 when he's talking to Nicodemus, he says, Most assuredly I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. We see God's kingdom. We are under his rule. We see the importance of the Ten Commandments and the other laws of God's word. We want these written on our hearts. Uh, We want these to influence our relationships with other people. We want them to influence even our own self-control, our rule over ourselves. We don't want sin to rule in our mortal bodies, but we would control. And all of this, we want this because we can see the kingdom of God. We are not blind to it. We are born again. Uh, It's a spiritual thing, but we see it. Spiritual things are foolishness to those uh, who don't know them. Uh, It says in 1 Corinthians 2, 9 through 16, But as it is written, I hath not seen, nor ear heard, nor have entered into the heart of man the things which God has prepared for those who love them, uh, love him, But God has revealed them to us through his spirit. And the things, if you look at the context, is talking about the cross of Christ and the things that God has done for us. And those are revealed to us. We can see them. We can see how important they are. And it says, but God has revealed them to us through his spirit. For the spirit searches all things, just the deep things of God. And then it goes on. It says uh, later in that chapter, verse 14, But the the natural man does not receive the things of the Spirit of God, for they are foolishness to him, nor can he know them because they are spiritually discerned. We know them because God's Spirit makes them real and he makes those things alive for us. We can see the kingdom of God. Jesus says to Nicodemus, who was a good man as far as an unregenerate person was concerned, he says... Uh, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Nicodemus needed to be born again. We all need to be born again to see God's kingdom, his rule. And Christ as king is a king that we only see that way when the spirit is there. Notice the, the word Christ means anointed. And Christ himself was anointed with God's spirit. And we need also to be anointed to fully understand who Christ is as a prophet, as a priest, as a king. And to see his kingdom, we need to have that anointing on us. We need to be born again. And then we see that kingdom and we appreciate it and know it. And part of being a Christian, meaning a little anointed one, not just a follower of Christ, but one who's anointed by God's spirit is knowing and seeing these things. Uh, becoming more like Christ because we're in his image, in knowledge as a prophet, uh, in righteousness because he is our high priest and in holiness because he is our king. And we become more and more like him as we see his kingdom as we know it. And we let him rule and he does rule even in our hearts, even over our thoughts. In this sense, we're under his rule and we're not letting sin reign in our mortal bodies. Well, let's pray. Father, we thank you for...
these things that we see in your word about kings and kingdoms. And Father, you did not care at all if a king uh, had a brilliant economy, but he was a wicked man. And you don't care uh, what we uh, make money-wise if we are not walking with you. You don't care about power in this world, but you will give your strength and your power to somebody who is like David, a man after your own heart, who seeks those things that a true king does. And Father, we are, if we are true believers and true Christians, we are, as Scripture says, priests and kings. There are kings in this world who will rule and have power, but they're not kings in your eyes. And we can be kings in your eyes even when we're not kings as far as this world is concerned. And so, Father, we pray you'd help us to be this. Help us, at the very least, to rule over ourselves, over our thoughts, to rule as kings and queens over those parts of us that you can help us by your Spirit to rule in. And, Father, we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Our hymn of response is six. 99. I have to turn this back on. Perfect.